into the book of 1 Thessalonians? I know I am. We spent this year uh, 39 messages in the Gospel of Mark, and we journeyed through the life of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, and the suffering and the death of Jesus. We finished up last week, and I asked you guys to think about what not only what Jesus did, what not only what happened to him, not only the story, the gospel narrative, but what it means and what it means for us. Okay, and then we talked about how shall we respond to the good news of what Jesus did for us. Okay, and the book of Thessalonians is going to carry us with that theme. How shall we? respond in light of the gospel, in light of Jesus' suffering, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and his return, how shall we live as Christians? What does it look like for us to follow Jesus in 2021? And so 1 Thessalonians is going to set before us some examples. I've titled this message, Uh, Gospel impact. Gospel impact. And I just want to highlight, as we're starting this series, that our vision statement here is to know Jesus, love people, and impact your world. Know Jesus, love people, and impact your world. And what we're going to see in the first two chapters of 1 Thessalonians is we're going to see gospel impact. We're going to see some lives that were impacted by the good news of Jesus Christ. Some lives that were transformed when they heard, they received, and they believed the message. And there was this ripple effect. And we're going to look at, in chapter 2, Paul's example of of gospel ministry. Um, And so before we dig in, and as we we look at some of these examples that are set before us, the, the Thessalonians... And the Apostle Paul and his companions. I want you to think about the people in your life who have been most influential for the good in your life. Think about those men and women, fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters that you know who wherever they go, they carry with them the aroma of Jesus, their life. Smells like Jesus, looks like Jesus, they sound like Jesus. And of course, no, no one does that perfectly. But who do you know that's been most influential, that has had an impact upon your life through their prayers, through their words, through their encouragement, through their accountability? And just think about that as we're studying this book, as we're studying these godly examples here at the beginning. Think about how God has used other godly examples to influence your life. And think about how, how you can be that for somebody else. That's going to be our application. Amen? So let us pray and we'll, we'll delve in. Father, we thank you for these inspired words written for us. That we might live hope-filled lives. Holy lives. Of love and faith and godliness. And so would you show us 
what it means for us to follow Jesus. Would you reveal your will to us? Give us understanding of what you want for our lives. Shape us in the Christ-likeness. By the power of your Spirit, impact us with the good news of Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. If you don't have your Bible, it's up on the screen. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness and hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction. With the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen, and thanks be to God. So here's our big idea of where we're going this morning from this text, and we're also going to delve into chapter 2 as well. The gospel has life-changing effects on those who receive and believe its message. And ministers of the gospel must be bold, sincere, Honest and gracious as they share the message. The life, the gospel has life-changing effects on those who receive and believe its message. And ministers of the gospel must be bold, sincere, honest, and gracious as they share the message. Now, one of the things that's special about the First Thessalonians is we have a little bit of backdrop here in in this um, uh, about this book. So. Luke records in the book of Acts uh, the narrative of when the Apostle Paul, on his second missionary journey, visited the Thessalonians. And so we got a little peek into the narrative. And the first couple of chapters of this book are narrative. It's recalling what happened. And there's some theology in there as well, but it's, it's, it's narrative. And then in chapter 4 and 5, Paul goes into exhortation. Exhorting the Thessalonians and how they are to live. But first he affirms and praises God and thanks God for what God has done in their lives. And he affirms 
they're, they're God choosing them and God loving them. And so let's look at Acts chapter 17 real quick before we go any further, just to give some backdrop. Now, when we had passed through Amphilius and Amphilia, Amphilia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews, and Paul went in, and as was the custom on the three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So here's Paul preaching the gospel, and it was his custom to go to synagogues first. To start with the Jew first, right? To the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. He started there, he went to the synagogues, and he reasoned with them. He used the basis of the scripture, those who had already accepted the Old Testament as scripture, which all points to Jesus, by the way. We believe that the entire Bible points us to Jesus. It's Christ-centered, and we're committed to being Christ-centered people. We want to see Jesus in the Bible. And so he explained and proved to to them that it was necessary that the Messiah would have to suffer and die and rise from the dead. And then some, some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. They're the Thessalonians, right? They were persuaded. They were convinced. The Holy Spirit was working. The Holy Spirit opened their spiritual eyes to see. And there were people who got born again and came alive in Jesus and were changed radically by the gospel. But there was also some other responses, which, which always happens as well. There's favorable responses. But then, uh, verse 5, but the Jews were jealous, taking some of the wicked men of the, the rabble, and they formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. How would you like that to be said about you? Talk about gospel Impact. Talk about impacting your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. This is a powerful statement. These men have turned the world upside down. And now they're here. What's going to happen? Right? And so there's opposition. There's opposition to, to the movement of God. But the enemy could not stop the word of God from advancing. No power of hell could stop the kingdom of God from advancing and rescuing broken, lost sinners in need of a Savior. And so, and Jason, and, uh, and Jason had received them, and they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed. And when they heard these things, and when, when they heard these things, and they, when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So here's Paul's experience in Thessalonica. There's, there's some good things happening, and there's some hard things happening. And, and usually, that's a good sign, right? 
If you're living for Jesus and you're doing what's right, don't always conclude that when you experience opposition, that you're not in the will of God or that you necessarily did something wrong, that you're facing opposition. Jesus, who lived a sinless, perfect life, experienced opposition. Paul, who was doing the will of the Father and and being a faithful missionary and church planner, experienced opposition. And as we'll see, the Thessalonians stepped into that opposition as well. Because it's a part of our lot as Christians. Was it not our crucified Lord who said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so we see in this text, we see in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, that the Thessalonians came to the Lord and there was, a, there was a significant impact. And my first point is simply this, that the gospel changed their relationship with God. The gospel changed their relationship with God. They didn't know God, the one true God, the living God. They had idols that they served and that they worshipped. And they needed to come into a genuine relationship with the one true God. Now Paul addresses the Thessalonians as those who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is consistent with how Paul described the, the, the saints and their relationship with Christ and with God. They're in Christ. They're, um, they're, they're abiding in the vine. We're the branches. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me. Right? They're, um, they're connected like body parts, like limbs on a, on a body. They're in the body of Christ. They're, they're connected. And, and this implies that, their life, the, that God is their source of life. That they have this living relationship now with the one true God. They're not pagan idolaters lost in darkness and in their ignorance. Groping about trying to find their way. They have found God or God has found them rather. And rescued them through the preaching of the gospel. So they became a community in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't done a study on that particular uh, phrase, like particularly in Ephesians chapter 1, if you want to strengthen your understanding of your identity in Christ, then study Ephesians chapter 1 and, and look at all the blessings of grace that we have secured in Him. It changes everything when we get that and when we experience that genuinely. It changes our lives. The gospel is powerful. Paul called it the power of God and the salvation to all who believe. To the Jew first and also, also to the Greek. And so the gospel changed their relationship with God. The gospel... Changed their relationship with God and they became not only in God and in Christ Jesus and got, they got reconciled with God, forgiven by God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, bought with the price of, of Jesus' blood. They had become a community that was marked by faith, hope, and love. Here's evidence 
of the change. Here's fruit. Here's tangible, visible, outward evidence of a change of life and a change of heart that the gospel brought to them. And as Paul was remembering them and and those specific characteristics, it caused gratitude in him. He said he was remembering before our God, our God. Okay, and he so so Paul's implying you're you're a part of the family, our and our Father, and remembering your your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul was there in Thessalonica for just a short period of time. Some some would say just three weeks because it was three Sabbaths, and others would argue that it was longer than that. But, but either way, Paul had just a, a, a short window of time to be with the Thessalonians. So these, these were newer believers, and immediately they're experiencing opposition and persecution in their faith. Right? And so surely Paul's concerned about them and wants to make sure that they're firmly established. And so he sends to find out what how they're doing, and, and he discovers that they're not just surviving through the opposition, they are thriving in the midst of persecution. The persecution didn't squish out their faith, but it actually strengthened it and purified it. And that's what happens when there's genuine conversion, when there's real salvation, persecution refines and purifies and, and shapes us more into Christ's likeness. And we have a responsibility as saints to let God do His purifying work. That, that the pressure of persecution and opposition can push us further away from God, or we can let it push us closer to God and, and, and become more Christ-like in the process. But nevertheless, that's a part, that's our lot as Christians. Everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Not too many people have that on their, their, their refrigerator. <laughs> Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. Now, it's important that we take on this perspective so that when it comes our way, we're not completely blindsided like, oh, I thought this wasn't supposed to happen to me. I'm a Christian now. There's a lot of folks who experience that. No one told me about this opposition that I might experience, that I can look for or expect at some point. And so they were, they were persevering in hope. They were, they were marked by faith, hope, and love. And I like how the NIV renders this. It says, your work produced by faith. As James tells us, faith works. Faith without works is dead. Right? So some, some think Paul and, 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 and James are in opposition, but they're not. They're just coming at the, the same reality at two different angles here. And Paul's saying a genuine faith is going to have works following it. Right? And so, so he, Paul's grateful for this because this all points to, to the authenticity of their salvation. The authenticity of their relationship with God. They've really come to know Jesus. And they didn't just add Jesus to, to the list of all their other gods. 
This, it was baffling to me when I was in India and I would talk about Jesus and I would see just a number of idols all over. And I, I was riding in a rickshaw talking to a, a, a taxi driver in the little rickshaw and he had a number of little uh, idols on his dashboard and, and Jesus was included in there. And he's like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, Jesus, yeah. And it, and it, it occurred to me, wow, this guy just doesn't get it. You don't just add Jesus into all the other gods that you have. Jesus is Lord. And he changes our lives. And what we'll see here shortly is that these guys turn from their idols and they turn to the living God in verse 10. And so now, now our idols in the West may look a little bit different, but we still have them. Our idols tend to maybe look more like our work. Or our hobbies. And we'll talk a little bit about that shortly. Because I don't, I don't want to just, just be harsh on those who uh, worship visible idols that they bow down to statues and images. Because our hearts tend to be idol making factories. And we can make an idol out of any good thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. But Paul sees their, 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 their work produced by faith. Paul sees their labor prompted by love. Faith and love marks the life of every genuine believer. First John tells us straight up, this is how you know who is a Christian. Their love. Jesus said it out of his own mouth. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's the visible, authentic mark of a follower of Jesus. There's love and it prompts action. Just like faith prompts action. And I often say that whatever we don't do out of love, the things that we're doing that aren't motivated or prompted by love are just going to burn up as vain. Vain works. And then he says, your endurance inspired by hope. They were marked by faith, hope, and love. This is the triad that the Apostle Paul revisits in chapter 5. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he is pointing the Corinthians towards this. He says, and now abide in these, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ puts in us a living hope. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, First Peter says, we now have, have this living hope. We're alive with hope and it's growing because there's a day coming when Christ will return. And we set our hope on that. And it's that very hope that enabled the Thessalonians to remain steadfast in the midst of persecution. And it's the same hope that's going to enable you to remain steadfast when you're going through your hardships. If you just look at the here and the now and think about how difficult and painful it is now, you might want to throw in the towel. But if you look ahead to the day that's coming... When there will be no more sickness. When our tears will be wiped away by Jesus. When he will make all things new. It will inspire us to press on, to not give up. And that is one of the themes in 1 Thessalonians. That the Apostle Paul revisits over and over. At the end of every chapter, Paul either explicitly or implicitly mentions the coming of the Lord Jesus. 
Now, we selected this book in light of Advent coming. Advent's coming up, and we, we, we focus on the first coming of Jesus every December as we, as we, as we celebrate Christmas time, Christmas, the birth of Christ. But we're also thinking about the second Advent that is coming, right? And so let us set our hearts upon that as we dig into this book. Let us think about Christ's return and be inspired to press on. The next thing in verse 4 and 5 is we see that they discovered that they were loved by God and chosen by God. Now this is powerful, and this is deep, and we could spend a lot of time here, and actually I, I've committed to going through too much this morning, and I'll try not to, to go past 12 o'clock, because I know the Cowboys are playing today, speaking of idols. No, no, no. <laughs> or the Broncos. They discovered that they were loved and chosen by God. Paul claims to have known that. Now, this is interesting to me, because I don't, I don't usually do that myself and say, man, I know you're chosen by God, unless there's some evidence. I can see visible evidence. I don't know what God has done in eternity past unless the Bible tells me, and if I see evidence that the Bible highlights. And the Apostle Paul saw some evidence. He said, for we know, brothers, loved by God. That he has chosen you. Now this is a, the, the doctrine of election should be a very encouraging and positive thing. And for unfortunately many have made it a point of debate and see it as a negative thing. And struggle to believe it and struggle to find out how they fit it in with their theology. But when taken appropriately, it should motivate worship. It should motivate holiness. It should motivate evangelism. It should give us assurance that before I was even born, and before you were even born, saints, God chose you, and he set his love on you, and you did nothing to earn that. And so the Thessalonians, just like Paul, saw that they were or that they, they have been loved by God and chosen by God, and the gospel of grace points out this reality to us. That God has loved us. And God has chosen us. And the evidence that he gives, a, he gives a, uh, in verse 5, he says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power. What's that mean? And also in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul is pointing to not only did his preaching... Come with power as he shared the gospel. Wherever the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit moves and works through that word. And the two work together. The gospel and the Holy Spirit. The word of God and the spirit of God. And we're, we're, we're a church that, that embraces both of those and values both of those. Okay? Some, some folks want to emphasize one over the, uh, over the other, but they work together. The word of God and the spirit of God. And so he proclaimed the gospel powerfully, persuasively. And the Holy Spirit was working. The Holy Spirit was opening eyes. And we also see that power in the change of life that occurred when they received it. They turned from their idols to serve the living God. They were changed from the inside out. They, they 
love sprung up from within. Faith, hope, and love. And all that affirmed their, their being chosen by God. And let's look at this next part here in verse 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how, the, how you turn from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is what theologians call conversion. This is what conversion looks like. A change. A decisive moment in time when somebody responds to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we believe that this needs to happen in every person's life. That you need to know Jesus personally. It's not enough to ride mom and dad's coattails. And though you may have been infant baptized and brought up in church, young people... There has to be a decisive moment in your life when you respond to the the gospel of Jesus Christ in faith and turning away from your sins and your idols. And this is what happened with them. And, And by the way, this repentance, this turning away from idols and turning away from sin, it's not just a one time act. Yes, initially a person does that upon conversion. But I don't know about you, actually I'm, I'm confident that you, you would say the same, that you've, you've had plenty of opportunities since you've been a Christian to repent again and again and again and say, God, I blew it. Or you go to somebody and you tell them, I blew it, I, I sinned, I was wrong, forgive me. And that's the Christian life. It's not just a one-time deal. It's an ongoing disposition of of repentance, of of having our minds renewed. As I mentioned last week, the the Greek word for repentance means change of mind. You change your mind, right? And then the the Hebrew emphasizes more a a turning, and and we, we have here both. Both are necessary. Both work together. You change your mind and you change your direction. If you're going the wrong way down a one way street and you realize it, then you, you turn around. Once you realize you're going the wrong way. And that's what happened with these guys. They, they realized that they were worshiping these idols. And they turned to the living God to worship Him, to, to serve Him, the one true and living God. And to wait for His Son from heaven, who was raised from the dead. So this is what I mean in, 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 in living in light of the gospel. This is how we can live in light of the gospel. We turn from our idols. We deal with them ruthlessly. And we turn to God to, to worship Him, to find our joy and our delight, our purpose, our meaning, our treasure, everything in Him. And Paul throws in here that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Later on in chapter 5, he says that God has not destined us to wrath, but to salvation. These words should comfort us and encourage us and give us assurance, blessed assurance, that goodness is coming our way for all eternity, saints, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Tim Keller in his book, 
counterfeit gods said an idol has such a controlling position on your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy and your emotional and financial resources on it without even giving a second thought. That's what an idol does. And it can be, an idol can be a good thing, such as work. God wants us to work. But he doesn't want us to, to look to work to be the defining factor in our life where we derive our meaning, where we derive our purpose, where we derive our hope and our joy. That comes from our relationship with God. Now we can do this with our spouse or our children. We can put them on a pedestal and put them on a place in our hearts and in our lives that they were never meant to be on. And that's just going to suffocate the relationship if we do that. Because God is the only one who can satisfy our hearts. He's the only one that will never leave us nor forsake us, who will never fail us, who will never let us down. And any time we make somebody else that functional savior, we get disappointed. We, we build resentment towards them. We get embittered because they were never meant to be that for us. But only Jesus is meant to be for us, our Savior and our Lord. And so let us be a people who deals ruthlessly with our modern day idols. And acknowledge, acknowledge when our affections are being drawn towards things in ways that they shouldn't be. The Thessalonians modeled that changed life that the gospel brought about. The, the Thessalonians, the gospel also changed their relationship with others. See, not only did their relationship with God change, but their relationship with people changed. As we talked about earlier, they, they began to take on love. They began to love others. In verse 6, they became imitators. You became imitators of us and the Lord. They followed the example of their spiritual leaders. The Apostle Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Right? There was discipleship happening. And spiritual leaders are designed, are, are called to set the pace. To be in a healthy place spiritually and set the pace for the church. And living in godliness, as we'll see here in 2 Thessalonians 2. So they followed the, the, the example of spiritual leaders, and they shared their faith with others. This is amazing. These were newer Christians. They, not, they were not only recipients of the gospel, but they were heralds of the gospel. They experienced something really good, something better than anything they've experienced in the world in their relationship with God. And they started telling people about it. Don't we do that with good things that we experience in this life? We're wired to tell people about good that we experience. We're wired to declare the goodness of God. The glory of God. The gospel of God. Verse, verse 8. He says, for not only has the word of the Lord, uh, for not only, but the word of the, has the Lord Word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith has gone forth everywhere, so that I do not need to say anything. Here is gospel impact right here. Here is a domino effect. Here's a ripple effect of the gospel's influence in the life of some godly saints. See, we all have examples. There's good, the Bible sets before us 
positive examples and negative examples to learn from. To be warned from the negative examples. Save ourselves from some pain. And then, and then to be inspired by godly examples and imitate godly examples such as these Thessalonians. They received the word with joy, even in the midst of affliction. But they not only received it, but they heralded it. They, they shared the good news. And what we want to do here at City Church, we want to do the same thing. We want to bring the gospel to every relationship. We want to bring the gospel to every relationship possible. We want to tell others and be witnesses of Jesus Christ and testify of what Jesus has done, of who Jesus is, of what Jesus has said, and testify of where our lives intersected with, with the gospel and was changed by it. That's why we, we have redemption stories. And if you haven't given your redemption story yet, we, we would love for you to talk to Steve. We'd love for you to come up here on a Sunday morning and share how your life intersected with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how God rescued you. And sound forth. Let your faith go forth everywhere like the Thessalonians. So they shared their faith with others. They displayed love to others. And they suffered persecution from the locals. Now let's look at Paul's example with just a few minutes left. Sorry, y'all. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much affliction. For our appeal did not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God... To be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, or a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have been made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of his own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves. Because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, that our labor and toil, we, we worked night and day that, that we might not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaim to you the gospel of God, you are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless our conduct was toward you believers. For you know that like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So let me just highlight a few points of Paul's example as a minister of the gospel. One, he endured persecution. He was persecuted and he endured it. He was treated shamefully. At Philippi, he was beaten, thrown in prison. He responded with praise, and God caused an earthquake, and he was able to get free. But then he's there in Thessalonica, and he gets evicted. He gets kicked out of the city by the locals. He endured persecution, but also he declared the gospel boldly. That even in the face of it, even though it may not have been popular, a popular message with the locals... 
It was counter-cultural. It caused some conflict. It caused some offense. He preached it. He preached the gospel. Boldly. Even though for some it may have seemed like a, like a crutch, like the message of grace may have rubbed people the wrong way. Like, oh, that's too easy. The legalists didn't like that. Right? And then maybe, maybe, maybe others who felt like it needs to be harder. You know, it needs to be harder or it needs to be easier or, or what you're saying. Uh, it, you know, I got to do something. World religion teaches us that you just got to work hard and be good. So you can go to God. But the gospel implies that we are unable to save ourselves and work our way to heaven. We need the rescue that comes from God, from heaven to earth. And that's one of the, 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 the distinctions between Christianity and world religions. Is Jesus came down to save us, to rescue us out of our sin. When we, when we were helpless, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul boldly proclaimed this message. And he boldly proclaimed that people are to respond to that message by giving up their idols. Turning from their sins and putting their faith in Jesus. Now that's offensive to proud people. It's offensive to hear those words, there's something wrong and broken with you and you need a savior. Because by nature we want to be our own saviors. We want to fix ourselves. The gospel teaches us that Jesus is the Savior who came to save sinners. Also, we see in Paul that he was sincere and he was truthful. He said, for our appeal did not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. He was straightforward about his message. He wasn't pretending to be serving in, in reality, wanting to be served by others. He came to serve like Jesus and sharing the message Paul wasn't seeking to please. Paul was seeking to please God and not man. You see, it's wearisome for anybody who's living under human criticism and trying to satisfy everyone's opinions around them. It's a terrible way to live. And Paul said if he was doing that, he wouldn't be a servant of Christ. In Galatians chapter 1. And so he was aiming to please God. And whether, the, 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 whether there was a favorable response to the gospel message or not, he was going to preach it. And, and he wasn't going to stop. Paul was, was also gentle, like, gentle and nurturing like a mother. Now, I think this is interesting. Here's the tough and rough Apostle Paul who went through so much. I mean, this is a tough guy. And in his masculinity, he's okay with describing his leadership as being gentle among you like a nursing mother taking, his, taking care of her children. He, he wasn't worried about losing his man card and saying a statement like this. He says, I was gentle like a nursing mother taking care of her own. So being affectionately desirous of you. And this is what healthy ministers look like. This is what health, healthy gospel ministers and pastors are to walk in. And this is what, as a church, you should expect from your ministers, from those who lead amongst the church. Sincerity, truthfulness, gentleness, 
love. Paul was also hardworking. He said, you remember our labor and toil, how we work night and day that we might not be a burden among you. He was diligent. He was bivocational. He was a tent maker. Perhaps he was doing that at nighttime. He was doing work at nighttime so he wouldn't be a burden to others as he was preaching the gospel. He was in his conduct. He was holy and righteous and blameless, he said. And he also exhorted the Thessalonians like a father. He exhorted and encouraged them like a father. He was firm and exhorted them to walk in a manner worthy of God who called you into his own kingdom and his own glory. And lastly, Paul was prayerful for the church. We see Paul starting off with this in the the beginning of the book. He said, we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And then throughout the book, we see a couple different prayers where Paul is praying for their love to increase. For them to be strength, for their hearts to be strengthened, that they would be blameless and holy in the presence of God. And, and at the end of the book, he closes it with a prayer. May the God of peace sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Paul modeled prayerfulness. And in this letter, at the end, he exhorted all Christians. He said, this is God's will for you too, guys. He said, "He said, pray without ceasing. Rejoice always. Give thanks in all things. You, as, as you go through Thessalonians, you'll see that the theme of thanksgiving is, is laced throughout it. Prayer is laced throughout it. And so let this month in November, as we, as we have the holidays approaching, as we have Thanksgiving approaching... Let this be a time of thanksgiving. Let this be a time of communion with God. Let us us imitate the Apostle Paul in this prayerful life, praying for one another and taking these apostolic prayers and using them for verbiage, for, 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 for targets in our prayers for one another as a church. And so let me close an application. First, reflect on the gospel message and how it has brought about change in your life. Think about what the gospel means to you and how you've been changed since you've understood it, since you've grasped it. Think about its effects on your life. Ponder that this week. And then tell somebody this week. Tell someone about the beauty of the gospel and its effect on your life. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of what's happened in your life. Because of Jesus, boldly tell others. And then pray about and pursue a relationship in which you can not only impart the gospel, but also invest your life into somebody else. We call that discipleship. Paul said we not only imparted the gospel to you, but our very selves. And he uses parental language like a mom and a dad. I mean, just think about the sacrifice of mothers, the care and the nurture and the sacrifice of mothers. We have some amazing mothers right here who are walking that out, nurturing their children, 
sacrificing for their children and investing a portion of their lives into their children. Not just instruction, do this or do that, here's the right way, here's what you need to do, but giving of yourself in discipleship and training up children. And that's what Jesus did, and that's what he commissioned the church to do, to go make disciples, teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all that I've commanded you. That's how we're going to make an impact in our world. Not only by heralding the gospel and sharing the message, but but by investing our very lives in love, prompted by love, inspired by hope. We, We invest our lives and we pour them out. And we know that our labor is not in vain as we do that. Because there's a resurrection. And there's rewards. And ultimately God sees that. And so whether there's favorable responses as we put ourselves out there to share the gospel. We feel the sting of rejection. And we feel silly. Like why did I even try to break the ice and have that gospel conversation with somebody? Or why did I even pursue that relationship to mentor that person? They, they don't want me to mentor them. Right? It's worth it because we're doing it as unto God, not unto man. He's worth it. And we want to be like the Apostle Paul exhorted the Thessalonians. We want to walk worthy of his calling. Live in a manner worthy. And so let's pray. I want to cut it short and not go too late. If you would, just right there where you're at. Just ask God and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. What What is He putting His finger on right now in your life? Perhaps there's something different that application that needs to happen in your life. Or maybe one of these specific points. What does next steps, a next step in following Jesus look like for you? Is it going to a brother or sister that you've hurt, offended? Is it clearing your conscience over something that's been bothering you? Is it going back and correcting something you've said that maybe wasn't honest or right or true? Is it just asking God for help? Instead of trying to figure things out and bear it all yourself through your life circumstances, your hardships. What's the Holy Spirit saying to you? Lord, would you speak to us? Would you fill us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding? I pray for City Church Garland, God, that our love would abound more and more for one another. I thank you for the love that is present. And I just share some of those same feelings and gratitude as the Apostle Paul did over the Thessalonians. That there's love present. There's genuine Christianity and and walking with you and with community right here.
And I pray that that would grow and increase as, as a result of our time here together in this book. As a result of our time pursuing you and seeking your face and studying your word and doing life together, God, may love grow. May we be marked by faith, hope, and love. May the gospel lead us to live consecrated lives that put the spotlight on you. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary pure and holy tried and true with thanksgiving I'll be a living sanctuary for